Okay, let's see if we understand how podcasts work. I have a guest on, I ask them questions, they answer the questions, and we spin off into follow-up conversations. Until today, this week's guest has turned the tables on me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 87 of the Resilient Journey podcast, presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I use the term host very loosely as I'm joined by my new friend, Yolanda Yo-Yo Hamblin. The wheels fell off this week's episode even before I asked my first question, as Yo-Yo told me that she didn't really like to be interviewed. And since she has her own podcast, she decided to interview me back during the same interview. All of that said, it's entertaining and valuable as we talk about resilience, mental health, and the importance of community. I'm frankly not sure what else to say, so have a listen. This is Yo-Yo Hamblin. Let me just explain to everyone what's going on here today. So I brought you in for episode 87 of the Resilient Journey podcast. I had a list of questions I wanted to ask you, but somehow... (laughs) Somehow you've turned the tables on me. I've met my match, and apparently we're going to co-interview each other. We are. That's what we're going to do. So, all right, let's start with um, uh, DJ (laughs) Yo-Yo. This is, uh, what, dance music you were doing, like live events, or were you on radio, or what, you know, how did this all come about? I, uh, I decided, I decided to... Uh, going to college uh, here in in the UK and I took a media course which was basically the foundations for TV, film production, radio, publishing and journalism and and I think it was because I wanted to be a journalist. (laughs) I'm so glad I didn't Um, but it started off with things like college radio and then hospital radio and then my next door neighbour uh, just happened to mention that he owned a bar in town and he was looking for a female DJ and it just literally went from there. And I was 17 and working in licensed premises far younger than I should have been legally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was tall and um, confident. So I got away with it and I wasn't very good to begin with, but fortunately for the grace of the ears of my guests in the licensed premises I worked in they they stuck with me and then I then I did become quite good and I managed to travel overseas as a as an international DJ then uh but really after 12 years it was time to settle down and have a proper job so I joined the police all right so obviously there's no way you knew this but I was a DJ too so you and I I we I said this to you before we started recording <laughs> you and I are the same person just what type opposite. of DJing? What type of DJing did you do then? So I was on the radio. Um, I did the morning drive uh, show, um, so six to ten a.m. Oh, that's uh, nice I was stuff. also seventeen years old, just like you, <laughs> uh, just finishing high school, and and uh, ended up doing um, some voiceover work for a school play. And the radio station said, "Wow, we like your voice. You should get into radio." And uh, that led to, you know, another job and eventually full time into radio. And then like you reached a point where I was like, well, I really do need a proper job, something that will actually pay the bills. It's fun. It is great work. And I'm so glad that I did it because what it did was it gave me confidence to speak publicly. 
Right. Right. And that's so important. And you know how important that is. And so, um, yeah, I think I've met my match here today. This is quite interesting. Well, interestingly, so I, I did a little radio work as well, but I I didn't enjoy being alone in a radio booth without an audience. And, and I guess I felt a, a better sense of purpose and satisfaction being in a huge crowd of people and rising to that occasion. You know, there's this... There's a huge difference in that interaction with people. Did you miss that when you were doing radio? No, no. Uh, I'm basically introverted and uh, prefer to be <laughs> alone when I work as opposed to being. I, I I was invited to go DJ at a at a dance one time, and I was just absolutely terrible at it. Just beyond brutal. Like I'm not even sure they ever paid me nor should they have ever paid me. It was terrible. So no, but uh, as far as on the air, I was actually pretty good at that. I was quite good. Uh, I like to have a good time, um, like to interact with, uh, you know, the news director and things like that and turn it into, again, probably too much fun than we should have been having, but uh, it was a great time. I, I Did loved you, it. Was your, was your radio station like a lot of American radio stations are like KSYBC? <laughs> Was it something like that? Yeah. So I had, I had, uh, there were two, they, they, the, the owners had, uh, had an AM station where we played um, sort of adult contemporary music. Uh, and that was much like what you just described, you know, and, uh, and then there was um, an FM station, which was a little bit more subdued. You know, we didn't, we didn't quite do those things, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the way that worked. Good All right, times. come on, let's talk about work a little bit here. So we talked about how similar we are. I didn't even know about the whole DJ thing. But, you know, in addition to sort of our normal careers and, and day jobs and, and things like that, we're both involved in really important organizations. So for me, it's the Resilience Think Tank. And for you, it's IFPO. And then I have a podcast and you have a podcast. And, you know, can we, can we be any more similar? I, I don't know, but... <laughs> Tell us about IFPO and what, what that's all about. The International Foundation for Protection Officers is a, a global security membership body that really does uh, focus on the front line. So where you have ASIS, which, or as is, uh, as it's pronounced in the States, uh, another international security membership body, but tends to um, be very centric around managers and management level and leadership within security. And I've been on the advisory board here in the UK for IFPO uh, with Mike Hurst, who is what we call, we, we call him a legend, but really he's a legend. Um, he's a legend in security, certainly within the physical security space, which is very, very broad. And when he invited me, it was a call to action. And I said, yeah, I'd love to get involved. So on the side, I'm always encouraging people to lean in and definitely volunteer. I think voluntary work pays dividends sure. uh, with your soul and with your heart and with your purpose and all the things that you know make us great human beings. And so I volunteer wherever I can. And we have a very, very strong agenda to promote um, accreditations, very similar to ASIS. They're promoting accreditations and certifications too. And we also have a sort of a subgroup around mental health because we know and appreciate that in the security industry at all levels, 
we have a lot of migration from both policing and military into the security industry. And with that migration comes certain mental health challenges. And we fully embrace the fact that uh, the security industry is on the front line in many respects. And the individuals are always working a little left of bang. And, and there's never this very sort of settled, comfortable, cozy feeling and people operating with different layers of stress. And I think it's just important to recognize. So we use this hashtag security minds matter and we promote uh, mental health, uh, wellness and well-being wherever we possibly can. Do you think it's a big factor mental health in, in your area of security? You see, I, I see what you did here, right? And you told me you don't like to be interviewed. <laughs> and, and so you now are firing back. This is, I like you. Yeah, I, we're going to be, we're going to be trouble together. I think the two of us. Let's do uh, it. So, so mental health in the resilience space. Y- yeah. I mean, for sure. And there's a couple of reasons why. So first of all, um, a lot of times, resilience teams and i'll use air quotes people won't be able to see it on the on the podcast but uh the teams are very very small Uh, two people sometimes one person sometimes you know not even a fully dedicated person to business continuity and resilience and when you're the individual that everyone's always going to and you're the subject matter expert and you're always again with the air quotes the smartest person in the room when it comes to that particular subject after a while, that can wear you down. And so that's the importance of the resilience think tank. And what we like to do is promote that interaction, that networking with colleagues. Uh, and so that's why we stand as an ally for people and a resource for teams of one to be able to try to help them. The other, I think, risk of adverse impact on mental health in my industry is for people who are in the midst of dealing with a crisis and maybe they're managing a crisis or they have a leadership role in the management of a crisis, it can be all consuming. And so I know for me, uh, the the most recent crisis that uh, I've been working on and, and, and I'm still working through is that there was a fire at our church. This wasn't even a paid client. Um, and uh, it was an arson fire. And um, I stepped up and said, hey, I'll take crisis lead on this and been working on that for the last three months. And yeah, it can become all consuming. And I think that, again, after a while, that starts to wear you down on the mental health. I think it's uh, it's something we have to be intentional about, right? It's a huge amount of responsibility. But I think, I think part of us, I think the makeup is that we kind of like that though don't you think it's like you and I we put ourselves out there we put ourselves out there to be shot down just doing a security podcast or a resilience podcast and but there's something in our own resilience I think that it's it's almost like a comfort to a certain extent what do you think about that there is a a certain rush there's a little bit of an adrenaline uh dopamine whatever it is that kicks in when that light goes on and you have to respond to it for sure. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You call you it dopamine. Mind, I, you call it dopamine. I call it sweat and oh hell and Mary, Mary, what the hell's going on? <laughs> it, it, yeah, no, but that's right. And and when you get that, 
that thing in your gut, right? That yeah. you have that oh crap moment. Mm. You better come with your A game. You better be prepared for it, right? Yeah. 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 Have you experienced the? I, I don't know what the right word is, but the the letdown maybe or the the drop off post crisis and and how has that affected you? So I was working for an organization once where we had a cybersecurity uh, attack. And it's interesting because a lot of people just literally rolled up their sleeves and got stuck in. And there were a lot of conversations going on. And I wasn't taking the lead in this, but my team was very critical to supporting the functionality of the investigation. And I just remember looking at it and because I wasn't immediately involved I saw a lot of people getting over involved and I felt that there needed to be um, it was almost like the too many chefs in the kitchen spoils the broth thing there were too many people and I need I, I felt that it needed in accordance with our crisis management and instant management methodologies it needed very clear defined lines of communication and lines of escalation and it was obvious to me that there was a lack of significant escalation um, that was making it very muddling and very confusing. And that was one of the learnings that I took away, not because, you know, it was anything I needed to do, just an observation that I, I made. And I think it's very important for organizations to really use that line of escalation whenever there's a crisis, because some critical information can literally be missed if you miss out one of those tiers. And, and I think how information was gathered, there were some significant learnings around that because there was a lack of really clear documentation about any new information that came to light. Uh, I think that there should be in all bridge calls, for example, a, a specific designated note taker who's there specifically to mm-hmm. um, to take actions. Recording bridge calls that go on for six hours isn't the way to do it. It's about having somebody designated to capture critical information. And, and again, especially when it comes down to cybersecurity, communicating critical information from a technical perspective into non-technical language is also incredibly important. And knowing how to do that is quite an important function. It's not something that I enjoyed, really, to be honest with you. I felt that it was a bit of a crap moment uh, in the sense of an oh crap moment. And I felt that there was a lot of finger pointing and blaming and blamery going on. Love a good made up word. And I just think my approach uh, with anything that's crisis related is this phrase. And I don't know who came up with it, but you never waste a crisis, right? You never waste it because there are so many opportunities to learn. And there are so many opportunities for us as professionals to learn from other people's mistakes because that's really where we get better all the time. Is that because the team wasn't prepared? I mean, what was the sort of the focus of that? Was it, it, this was the technical team that was responding to the cyber attack or was it a crisis management team that was trying to figure out communications and navigation or, you know, so talk a little bit about the scope of it. And then was it just because they just weren't prepared or didn't think ahead? Like what happened? Yeah, they weren't prepared. Uh, we hadn't had, um, 
I don't know, let's just say that the organization was fairly dynamic and dynamic is another code word used for fairly unstructured, but um, uh, also think, known as disorganized. Yeah. Okay. But I, I, I think also, don't get me wrong. You know, there are several stages of um, there are several stages in a business and some of those stages in order for a business to be successful, they need to go through that very dynamic kind of almost brainstorming stage before they norm and, there were a lot of new entities and unknown entities in the sense of people involved with unclear roles. And I think from a from a consultant's perspective, if I was to look back, I'd say, okay, we simply hadn't prepared in the sense that we hadn't done any tabletop exercises, we hadn't done any run-throughs, we hadn't really explored the fact that this could happen to us. And, and therefore, when it did... And I think that there was too much ego at the table. There was too much bravado. And I think sometimes you've just got to sit back and think, okay, what's really happening here? And is it still happening? And if it is still happening, can we stop it happening? If we can't stop it happening, we need to escalate. And then, you know, if it stopped happening, how did it happen? And it's about learning as quickly as possible how we can protect ourselves and the data and the business and the people and sometimes I just think there was an awful lot, you know, when you're in a meeting and there's just a lot of words, but it doesn't really mean anything. You yep. Know? yep. Yep. And, and you know, one of the secrets there, and this is hard to do is to be, to have someone in a leadership role in, in that crisis uh, setting to be able to look at the room and say, hold on a second, this isn't working or we need to change direction or we need to focus uh, on things a little bit differently. And that's, that's really, really hard to do, uh, particularly when there's executives at the table. And I don't know, have you ever known an executive to have an ego? I mean, I may have come across one or two. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, isn't it part of the CV that you have to have, have that to, to do it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think you're right. I, I was working with a client recently and we were talking about, well, who's going to be the crisis lead right the person who's going to execute or facilitate the crisis management meeting we're doing our planning there wasn't a crisis we're planning ahead and it was suggested that uh, an individual do it but that individual's boss would also be invited to the meeting as an observer and my initial thought was they're never going to be an observer you get an uh, an executive at the table they're going to want to take charge yeah it's just instinctive. Uh, but I think there's ways of managing upwards. But again, I think that comes down to establish relationships and trust. And I think where you have new teams and you have undefined roles and you have uncertainty and you have a new problem and you're still sort of forming together as a team, I think that's the biggest risk an organization can have. It's utterly the definition of total unpreparedness. You know, you talked about managing up right there. I want to jump on that. You know, it's it's part of being a good leader, isn't it? To be able to either explain new things to your superior or maybe even guide them into the right direction. Can you talk a little bit about ways that maybe we could do that more effectively? Again, I think it's, it all comes down to trust. I think um, I think it really works when when the teamwork is there. And if the teamwork isn't there, it just crumbles and breaks so quickly. And I think one of the reasons why businesses are really vulnerable is because 
the unpreparedness is a factor because there isn't the teamwork and there isn't the teamwork because they haven't had the rehearsals and the they say you know to be good at anything I I listened to a podcast earlier on and the 10,000 hours makes sense you've heard the 10,000 hours rule that if you do something for 10,000 hours you become perfect at it and you have to kind of ask yourself as a human being you know what could I do for 10,000 hours that I would that wouldn't become onerous or you know drudgery for me um and I think I think this is what I learned is the principle that I think all teams have to learn how to deal with crises together yeah. because it's like you wouldn't send a football team out without the uh intention of scoring goals and I think sometimes because there's such a lack of unpreparedness that teams score own goals especially when it comes down to cybersecurity threats and then take into consideration that, I mean, that the PCI, uh, the payment card industry, they produce this um, regulation that any organization that's processing a significant amount of credit card data, you know, those organizations have to meet the regulatory standard. But in 2018, they reported that 47% of the, P- of the, country, the companies, sorry, the companies that were supposed to have this regulation were falling short of the standard. So that tells you in 2018, and I'd like to know what the update, up-to-date figure is, mm-hmm. that people, organizations were not taking seriously the ownership and protection of people's credit card information. You've only got to you know, have a load of bad guys read that same open source news information to realize, okay, there's a whole playing field here we can go for. And criminals have more time to be agile and come up with new workarounds and new ways of doing things. They have a lot more money and they have a lot more time. So I'm very much around as a a professional myself, just focusing on the people uh, as part of the triad of people, process and technology. The people is the area where the most attention needs to be, the intention and the attention and this is where the training that dreaded four-letter word you know the drumming it in you know what what individual responsibilities what individuals have in the relation to responsibilities for the employer they're working for and I think a lot of people are missing that a lot of people are going down the technology route it's there's too many holes in it and people are going to be the key success to an organization being resilient an organization being able to manage threats and an organization to be confident that they're protecting the assets within the business, which includes data. But I'm preaching to the converted here. What have you learned about resilience this year? (laughs) Before I get to that, I want to, I want to go back and jump on something you said. You talked about people process and technology. And what I want to do is I want to ask the listeners right now to think about that because you said you tend to focus on the people. And you made me realize, and I, I didn't think about this until you, you said that, you made me realize that I tend to focus on the process. And I would say out of 100%, I would probably do 70%, uh, 75% process, mm-hmm. 20% people, and maybe 5% technology. That's That's just a typical approach for me. I'm not saying it's right. And I'm terribly hoping that it's not wrong, but that's the way I do it. And I I think you would tend to be a little bit, or maybe not a a little bit, maybe a lot more focused on the people side. So my question to the listeners is, 
when you're thinking about your own resilience approach um, or your own information security approach or data protection approach or whatever it is that you do on a day in and day out basis, what is your focus? Is it people? Is it process? Is it technology? And then the follow-up question to that for the listeners is, is that right? Is it effective? And if it's not effective, you probably don't have to look any further than maybe tweaking that dial a little bit to say, you know, maybe I do need to pay a little bit more attention to the people because I think that's something that you just taught me. I think that that's something I could probably do better on. So the reason it's important that we start with people is that there are so many studies and reports that demonstrate that human errors, behavior, and actions are the primary causes of business risk. And therefore, if we correct those, then we have, you know, a stronger, more resilient organization. When you consider also that Ponemon Institute produced a cost of insider threats report in 2020, the Mm -hmm. average cost of an insider threat related incident is $11.45 million. The report found that 60% of these incidents were caused by employee or contractor negligence, while 23% were caused by malicious insiders, which is alarming. Verizon, in 2021, they had a data breach investigations report that found that 85% of data breaches involved human interaction, such as phishing scams, you know, the the normal social engineering attacks. And then Accenture did a report saying 69% of security breaches are the result of human error. Uh, you know, falling foul of phishing scams and failing to use strong passwords. So this is the evidence that I feel massively underpins why people has to be the main focus, because if your people are functioning well, they're learned and they're competent and strong, they'll recognize when the processes aren't and the processes then by default will be improved because the processes have to uphold everything that we do, right? I really appreciate that perspective. That's amazing. And uh, I accept the challenge to go back and look at it and say, okay, what what can I do? And go back and look at the process, the 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 processes again, and and say, okay, now if I make my people stronger with the good solid processes that I've built in place, then they can only make the plan better. So uh, I, I love that. Uh, about an hour and a half ago, you asked me what I learned uh, in resilience uh, this year. I think for me, the thing that I've learned most about resilience this year is how uh, uncomfortable people are in sharing work that they've done. I had a conversation not too long ago with some colleagues who have been in the business for a long time, and we were talking about sharing business continuity plans with each other. And it seems like any time that you do that, there's always this conditioning of, well, I can show this to you, but remember we had to put it together quickly or whatever. And so there's this insecurity about some of our work when it comes to plans. And um, I think that, uh, that that's interesting. Even people that have been in the business for a long time still have certain insecurity about sharing their work. It makes you wonder really, you know, Mark, whether there is a culture there that this sector of security isn't empowered enough. And And it kind of makes me feel a bit sad because we love process working in resilience and risk. We really do. We love process because process is it's it's your dummy's guide to just follow this, this and everything will be fine. We know that's not necessarily the case, but without having that, things are a lot worse. And all we can do and I love doing this is 
improving my processes every year. Hey, look, um, I'll get you out of here on this. I want you to talk a little bit about your own podcast. Uh, what's it about? <laughs> what's it called? Where can we find it? How come well, I haven't been on it yet? Well, how come you haven't been on it yet? <laughs> um, so, look, uh, this was really unexpected, and it happened in December last year. Uh, in between work, I was at a bit of a loose end, and Mike Hurst, my chair at IFPO, said to me, do you fancy doing a podcast? And the penny dropped. And I thought, my gosh, this is it. I've been looking for a way to re-engage with my network. I'd been crawling under a brick because I didn't really want to tell people that I was out of work. And I was feeling ashamed for being out of work. And I, you know, all those sorts of things, what happened when you lose a job, you don't expect to. And then, and then this kind of really wonderful opportunity came along and I'm quite a creative person. And I think because I'd had a little time off work, I'd stepped off, off that corporate rat race and my brain was breathing and I was able to enjoy the moment. And I just thought, okay, I've got a wonderful opportunity here because the security industry in all of its facets gets a real bashing when things don't go right from the bottom to the top. You've only got to look at Manchester Arena to identify the significant number of failures that happened within security processes and procedures and people. Right. And and then I thought, you know what, we're not very good at really shining a light on all of the brilliance that we are and the best in class and the people who are trailblazers and the people who are, you know, doing master's degrees in their 50s, the people who are fighting with PTSD every day the people who are desperately trying to transform the industry to a a more inclusive place the people who are trying to transform the industry so that it's a career for young people not a second chance and you know make it a career of choice and professionalizing all sort of facets of security because their stories from you know american cop to global influencer or sniper in the military to global influencer these journeys are relevant and they're meaningful and they're exciting so really it's just about whatever part of security you're in the facets are phenomenal we are a big big community we're all very similar and very different we've all got good stories yeah great and the podcast is called so we call the podcast security circle and the idea is that the, the circle is the community. We are one community. Yeah, and I think I think anything, if anything, it's the guests that do the heavy lifting, right? Of course, and, sure. And they are what make it. So I can't claim all the credit, not by a long shot. Well, you can claim all the credit for this episode because you did all the heavy lifting on my podcast. Thanks so much <laughs> for being here. I appreciate it. And I assume people can connect with you on LinkedIn and you're pretty welcoming to to new connections like that. 100%. Reach out. We're all a community. And I think, Mark, I need to book you so you can come on my podcast. I think, what do you think? I'm right there. All you got to do is ask. Yo, yo, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I want to thank this week's guest, Yolanda. Hold it. What? I love it when Americans call me Yolanda because of the accent. It's really kind of funny. And it's um, in, in English, it's Yolanda. But I like Yolanda, but also I like Yo-Yo. How fitting that Yo-Yo would get the final word even in the outro of the episode. 
Hey, The Resilient Journey is a Resilience Think Tank production, and I want to remind you that next week, I'm joined by all three of the other managing partners of The Resilience Think Tank as we talk about an exciting new event that's coming that you're going to want to hear about. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.